Hi, everyone. Uh, this is John Mandrola, and I'm doing a podcast with a uh, very special guest. This is uh, Dr. Malcolm Finley, who's at Bartholomew Hospital in London, and uh, he is a senior investigator of a, a brand new trial that just published a feasibility study called Orbita AF, and it's an exciting trial because it is the first double-blinded, placebo-controlled uh, AF ablation study. And uh, Dr. Finley, thanks so much for talking with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me along. It's, uh, it's really great to meet you. All right, so this is exciting to me because I've been uh, beating the drum for many years, having debates, losing debates, because I feel like we should have in electrophysiology a placebo-controlled uh, study of AF ablation. And that means actually one group gets the AF ablation and one group gets a placebo ablation, uh, sometimes called a sham ablation, where uh, the patients don't know, and then we measure things. And so, uh, Dr. Finley, tell us uh, tell us how this started and and um, how this got going and how you guys got involved. Yeah, so thank you. So uh, the very start of this was in the best way in a cocktail party in London and about 10 years ago where I was uh, with uh, Rasha Al-Lami from, uh, uh, from Imperial College and who was telling us about her crazy idea about doing a uh, placebo-controlled trial for interventional cardiology. And the challenge was put down to me, Could was it gonna be possible for us to do that in, uh, in atrial fibrillation? I, wrote, I decided to rise to that challenge. And it's been a uh, long road, I have to say, you know, to try and get us to a point where uh, we've been able to uh, select a patient group, get a protocol together and uh, overcome the inherent, I guess, skepticism about doing such a trial uh, locally and recruit. And finally, we've published this. And I'm pleased to say we've now got funding for the follow-on uh, follow trial, there, which will be entitled Orbica AF. So we should talk about why it's so challenging. I mean, what, because I, th I think for the audience, the, the proponents of AF ablation will say, we don't need a placebo controlled trial because we can measure AFib afterwards. We know patients feel better and uh, we're, we're sure that symptoms get better. Um, and so how would you describe the challenges and, and how, you know, why did your group and you think that we needed to do this? Yeah, so um, it's true. We do measure that patients feel better. And we do find that patients do, uh, you know, you know, patients do better under our care. But actually, we're not comparing like the like. And patients have a cardioversion and we give them drugs. We give them amiodarone and keep them in sinus rhythm like that. And many cardiologists, many general physicians don't really believe uh, that the uh, pulmonary vein isolation is having that big a difference, the difference that in the AF lab that we kind of see our patients get. And I think it's so easy to fool ourselves as to, to affect sizes. Bizarrely, in AF, some people have it the other way around, an EP, we have loads of skeptics, and I think we hamstring ourselves sometimes by not believing how good AF ablation really is. And by, on the converse, I said about giving patients drugs, well, uh, you find that patients may well do worse with cardioversion than we even expected them to. And by comparing like with like, patients who would be suitable for either cardioversion 
or, de- or polyvein isolation with a cardioversion, we can get a true measure of not just uh, the efficacy of air fibrillation and the patient benefit, but also the effect size that we'll have at the end. And so what actual outcomes could we expect patients to have? And frankly, without doing those things and controlling for as many confounders as we can do, we're always going to have a question mark about the validity of the results. So, you know, it's not, this has been a pilot study. This is a sort of really a feasibility, uh, feasibility one of patients. So it's not the definitive answer, but I think we have shown that we can aspire towards getting really high quality data about the effect sizes of our interventions. Yeah. So what would you say about in your in your study, you're recruiting patients with persistent AFib. And what would you say uh-huh. to me if I told you the story of multiple patients who have persistent AFib and they come back um, with uh, post-ablation and they might be in sinus rhythm for one visit, but maybe six months later, they're in atrial fibrillation, but they still are thankful to you for making them feel so much better. Whereas before the ablation, they had terrible symptoms from their AFib. And so I have slides where I, I, I show that someone's post-ablation in AFib saying they feel great and uh, they're still in atrial fibrillation. And whereas they had yeah, symptoms I mean, I, before. Yeah, I mean, I feel great speaking to you, John. I mean, honestly, that, that's the thing. You go to a doctor, you have some treatment, you're looked after. There's a whole load of anxiety that peels away. You're going to feel better whether you have it under a cardioversion or an ablation. Now, honestly, I am a big proponent of AF ablation. I am an aggressive EP physician. I ablate people. I think it's a great treatment. But I think it's beholden on me to be testing that approach, that this is really not my nice bedside manner. This is actually the cardiac intervention that is going to be making a difference to people. I guess that's what we're trying to test. In. Yeah, and and I think before we get into the trial, I know people are probably waiting to talk about the trial, but I, I actually, one of the things that I say is that if people say we can't do this in EP, but then I show those slides that Rasha Alami showed in Orbita, um, and I know it's separate. I, I know their group is separate than yours, and I think we should say that, but when I look at what she did, what they did at Imperial College, and they show those very tight LAD lesions, and they actually randomized those patients to a placebo procedure. And in the first orbita, at least, showed really not much difference. And so I was thinking to myself that if someone can randomize an 80 to 90% mid-LAD lesion to a placebo procedure, why can't we randomize a, 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 a sham or placebo-controlled yeah, ablation? I got to say, I think there's a whole lot there, which is uh, jurisdiction specific. So here we have the NHS system. We've had uh, a lot of strikes, a lot of waiting lists uh, after COVID. We've had particular problems around here. Um, And that allows me to, if I have a research list, then people are saying, oh, have you got a research study that can get me in sooner? Uh, And they know that actually, even if they go down a placebo, if, if they have a placebo treatment, the cardioversion ultimately, and then they go on to cross over, for example, go back into persistent AF and now excluded from the study and now go for an ablation. They'll still be hitting that table for the ablation probably sooner than they would be had they been put on a regular waiting list. So that's not the case everywhere for every patient, 
But at least there's somewhat of a perception about that. And so that makes the whole conversations about this more, uh, you know, more easy. And I, I should say that I think our hospital's done a fantastic job of, uh, you know, allowing these research lists to go ahead and maintaining the priority for the patients. But, you know, in your standard AF patients who's not particularly unwell with it, uh, you can be waiting a while. Yes, yes. I mean, I it is interesting how that different system has allowed for that. But let's talk about your your study. So this this started at at your hospital. You're recruiting patients with persistent AFib and uh, randomizing these patients to uh, either a standard PVI. Now, is the PVI with cryo balloon or RF or either or? Yeah. So so this is really important. So we yeah. uh, initially decided. Well, actually, it was the advent of Fire balloon standardized treatment that allowed us to consider doing like there'll be one size fits all for our patients uh, for persistent AF. So uh, it's patients who ideally are fresh, persistent AF, not patients who've had multiple cardioversions previously. So to really ask the question, so upfront, new persistent AF patient, should we be going for an ablation or down a cardioversion route? So it's not really that uh, tackling the heart failure group of patients at, at all. Um, the, cryo, the technology, I think, is now taking a bit of a backseat. And I think about AF treatment and pulmonary vein isolation. I mean, everyone's showing lines which overlap one another for RF, cryo, or pulmonary uh, PFA. Um, so I think in the main trial, that will be less of an issue. So we'll have to be less specific about the, uh, the technology we choose. So the, the PVI group, was it all in this pilot, all cryo balloon? All cryo, correct. Okay, so PVI with cryo balloon. And then the the control group, the placebo group, was uh, a cardio version, but under the same circumstances. Where yeah, so Tell us about that. Yeah, thanks. So patients were admitted for PVI or, uh, or cardio version. And patients came to the lab and were sedate. They went under deep sedation. We inserted a, a two sheath in the groin, and at that point, the patient was nice to this sleep. Then we randomised, and if they were randomised to cryoablation, we underwent a standard cryoablation, did a cardioversion at the end. If they were randomised to cardioversion, we did a uh, we upgraded to the uh, sorry. If we randomised to cardioversion, then we walked through the procedure pretending to do the ablation, including moving the x-ray, um, including phrenic nerve pacing. And at the end, we at the end, once we'd done that walkthrough, then we would do the cardioversion. So actually patients had a very similar experience, very similar times in the lab, and they all came out with a with a uh, having had a groin sheet. And so uh, uh, when they come out, uh, I assume the the blinding procedure is to have the are the are the caregivers, the nurses, the doctors? Are they aware? They're on. So, yeah. So so no one outside the lab. We handed over. Uh, this patient's had a uh, has been randomised in the orbital AF study. They've either had a PVI and cardioversion or a placebo and cardioversion. Treat this patient as if they've had a PVI. Okay, and then um, and then so what was the purpose and the primary endpoint of this feasibility study was just was really kind of a, a, a just to maintain blinding, whether whether you yeah, maintain blinding. Absolutely. You weren't looking at outcomes yet. Absolutely. The outcomes were secondary measures. So they were, you know, we, we had some outcome variables, but actually we weren't powered for anything like that. Well, all we were powered for 
was showing that we could perform this protocol of study. And we learned some things. And so we'll be changing some things slightly, but importantly for the main study. And what did you find? So the key finding was, number one, patients really had no idea what intervention they went, they underwent, nor did the staff on the ward after, nor did the follow-up doctors. And this was uh, really a uh, hidden procedure for the, for the patient in terms of their group allocation. Number two, those secondary endpoints were actually pretty impressive. Our effect size was you know, we had a 60%, uh, you know, 60% of the patients were in sinus rhythm in the ablation arm, whereas only 30% were in the, uh, in the, in the cardioversion arm. So there was a huge effect uh, size there. Tiny patients, huge error bars. But, you know, we've got, we've got something which we then can power the main, uh, the main study from. And the main study will be powered for what exactly? So that will be powered for uh, recurrence of persistent atrial fibrillation, uh, at one year, and that will be measured on a loop recorder. And, and I mean, what about quality of life? Yeah, so we've got, we've had several quality of life measures. We had to, I guess we've got to be careful about which, there's several quality of life measures floating out there, including our own internal patient reported outcome measure that was developed at, uh, at BART. Uh, so we'll be asking a series, a series of these for the main, main study. And actually, Although we had a, uh, we did see a improvement in the patient reported outcome measure, our own Bart's patient reported outcome measure, the uh, more generic, uh, the, S, um, the SF5 and so on, um, that doesn't really show that, you know, that's not sensitive enough in such a small number of patients to even be expected to show a change in, uh, change in outcomes. Okay. And when I look at your quality, patient reported outcomes, when I look at your your I, I know we should we we need to be really careful because it's a feasibility study and it's a small number of patients, right? But absolutely, the, absolutely. They, the patient reported outcomes for quality of life, man, they look the same early on, despite a difference in uh, amount of AFib versus sinus rhythm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I it's think just that's curious to a, me. Yeah, I think that's as much a we've got small numbers here. We've got really small numbers. We will get a good answer. We're not powered for those those measures. And also, our quality of life measures, they are real second rate in atrial fibrillation at the moment. So there, there's some work to be done on actually the measurement scales we're using in, uh, in atrial fibrillation, how it affects people. I mean, you know as well as I do that patients will have subtle withdrawal from their social activities, which is poorly captured in any of these quality of life measures when they're in AF and a lot of drugs. And, you know, I suppose this study will, the main study at least, will hopefully tease apart some of those, those factors. Yeah, and a, a European colleague sent me uh, a WhatsApp message and he, he sent me the little Halloween thing that P equals 0 0.06 because even though it was 60 versus 30, you're p-value was 0 0.07 so uh, uh not significant amount of difference but that i know it's a small number but still <laughs> it's it's interesting you know we we um uh, yeah i mean this is highly important that we can get a uh difference uh of that, that we can show we can do the study i think the differences are qualitative the statistical metrics here to compare are weak but that is uh, as well as our the classical education and statistics. If we didn't do bootstrapping on these these numbers. We didn't do any of the more 
you know, complex uh, statistical tools to try and, you know, distinguish subtle differences between the groups. Uh, we're I know. Just trying yeah. to be vanilla here. And and the how will you how will you maintain um, blinding with different drugs? So uh, will how will both groups be on the same drugs? Or I mean, I know anticoagulants, yeah. but how how will you work that? Yeah, that's a it's been a point of contention. Um, I mean, there's two schools of thought. One school would be let's keep all the drugs, specify them in the protocol as a definitive protocol breach unless you're on this group of drugs. But um, another approach, which is a more pragmatic, is that if we are doing a true randomization and if our blinding is good, then we can let physicians do what they want to the patients because the drugs are part of the, the are part of the whole treatment process and that will come out in the wash. So we plan to recommend but not mandate uh, treatment with amiodarone during the course of the procedure, for example. Okay. And uh, the other question I have about blinding is how will you maintain blinding in the era? Like when this trial was done, uh, when you started this, maybe there weren't so many uh, patients with smartwatches or whatever, but now that we have patients wearing these smartwatches, it might be, it, it might be difficult to, especially in persistent yeah. AFib patients uh, to, yeah keep that but, blinded i mean it may, it may surprise you from my reputation but i'm pretty good at cardioversion so everybody comes out the yeah. lab yeah everybody comes out the lab and sinus with them so everybody isn't sinus with them at the end of the at, at the end of the day um and so i guess if patients notice they're an afib well we're also noticing that by their loop recorder so they've all got loops in uh they're not blinded to their own heart rhythm but they are blinded to their treatment allocation okay okay well, um, I really, really am excited about this. I know that when I know that there's things to work out, and I know that there'll be things to discuss. But the fact that you're doing it and uh, and and it's brave and courageous and scientifically really important, and I think it's super exciting. And I'm 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 glad it's ongoing. And I'm it's congratulations. And I'm well, thankful. Thank you. thank you so much. If I could just say a couple of things, where no one. It's really the team that allows us to do these things at Bart. I just really want to give my uh, heartfelt gratitude to uh, Vijay Kantasami, who's my uh, research fellow, and also Prof. Uh, Richard Schilling, who's been uh, my mentor through all, through all this. And so uh, nothing's without the team. And also, it's not just uh, us trying to do these uh, brave studies. There's also groups in uh, you know, in, uh, in, in uh, on the continent and also another group here in the UK who are also coming up with these uh, blinded studies. So I think there's a, a group of that. It's a, it's a world we're part of. And I'm just excellent. Um, super exciting to talk to you. And, and thank you very much. Yeah, no, thanks so much.